0: Hello and welcome to a very special edition of IMI's Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host Hugh and today I'm joined by one of Ireland's most prominent business leaders, Anne O'Leary, CEO of Vodafone Ireland. We talked about the lessons in leadership she's accrued during her journey from her days as an ambitious Corkonian looking to go beyond the ordinary. We talked about resilience, purpose, how you deal with mistakes, following your instinct and not your friends, ego and humility, and the importance of gender diversity in business. And like every career, the bit of luck she got along the way. We recorded this conversation way back in March, just a couple of days before Ireland went into full lockdown, and just a few weeks after Anne had received an IMI Life Fellowship. Listening back after what has seemed like five years rather than five months, it struck me how many of the lessons we talked about could be applied directly to today's environment. So, hope you enjoy the show. Um, I'd like to start with your home and growing up. What influence did your parents have on the person you've now become? Big question to start with. definitely a big question. (laughs) but
1: I'm really not sure. um, um, So I was the only girl and I had three brothers. Mm -hmm. Um, Dad worked away a lot. So I think a lot was left to my poor (laughs) mum, who I only now realise, you know, did so much work. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose being an only daughter, I think you always have that very special bond with your father. So he really did, you know, love me unconditionally <laughs> and made that very clear. You were the favourite, obviously. I think so. If, if I may, you know, and I felt uh, very supported and loved by him, which I, I think as a child is probably something I take for granted. Yeah. But, you know, you know, even when he wasn't there, he was working away, I couldn't wait for him to come back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe as well, and it's not right, you know, he was earning the money and... You know, anything I asked him for later on to go shopping, you know, or whatever, actually, he always said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I probably did have him wrapped around my finger. But I think, you know, not saying that, my mum was the one day to day. Yeah, of course. Doing all the work and uh, the cooking and the cleaning and the dropping off and probably dealing with the hard conversations as well. Uh, but, you know, I think it was a loving household. Mm. Um, um. And I remember my childhood as being very carefree yeah. and fun and um, because I was an only girl I spent a lot of time in my neighbour's house you know who had girls as well yeah, yeah yeah, so they were like my sisters I didn't really hang out with the boys
0: were you competitive with them
1: um, not or was it really? quite separate I kind of ignored them I found them a little irrelevant <laughs> some of my brothers said I was never there so it's kind of interesting. I was up the road in my. I had two particular friends growing up to the age of twelve, and they were both like one was a very young girl, uh, the youngest of a family. So she yeah. and her sisters were too old, and I was her, And another girl is an, an only girl. So it was like the three of us were girlfriends.
0: So the brothers are on the mother's apron string, so to speak, and you were off out.
1: Probably yeah, my mother was shy and kind of introverted. And I was outgoing. She said I used to go to the front gate and put my hands up to go walking <laughs> with people. You know, so I, th- I you know. So I'm not sure, but um, thankfully, it was a nice, fun, and worry-free childhood.
0: And you were in the Cork area, right? Was it the city or sort of more rural areas?
1: So I grew up in Beaumont Drive in Blackrock, which is in ci- in the city. But my parents were both from West Cork, mm. from McCroom and Bandon, and they were quite country people, actually. Yeah. And grew their own vegetables, and uh, but they decided that there'd be better opportunity access to schools and whatever for for the kids in in Cork city. So the Sunday spins was going down to West Cork, which at the time seemed like we were going to Dublin. We were really early going to Bandon and Macroom, um, and we always holidayed in different places in yeah. West Cork. So yeah, um, no, but I'm a definitely a city slicker, as my father <laughs> used to call me.
0: You do get out of the city though, once or twice. You were a competitive swimmer when you were younger, right?
1: Yeah. So as a kid, uh, swimming was my thing. I loved it, um, and I competed in galas and for my for my school. Um, and my other great love was dancing, drama, theatre, and they were probably the two things mm. that I did. I didn't actually play a lot of ball sports for whatever reason. I went into secondary, took up hockey, but decided I kind of wasn't good it wasn't. enough. I didn't bother. Um, I still, I'm sorry I didn't <laughs> persevere because I think it's a great thing to do. Yeah. Uh, but I spent most of my time, you know, organising the school musicals or drama or whatever was on. And I kept swimming for a few years, but then, like a lot of teenage girls, gave up at about 14, but went back at 18. And I've been swimming ever since, thank God.
0: I saw your DSPCA, uh, was it a mile a day for a month?
1: So it was the ISPCC. ISPCC, sorry. One K a day, I did in the sea. Uh, September, was it? 2018. So, but look, I mean, if you're a swimmer, people will understand, swimming a kilometre is not hard. Yeah. The getting into the sea was, (laughs) you know, whatever. But actually, I never felt better. So swimming in the sea, I can understand why people love it.
0: And that uh, thing about persevering because you weren't very good at it, is that something that uh, has carried on to your later life where you latch on to things you're really good at and excel and then where you're not good at it, you may be put...
1: Yeah, I don't know. I suppose, I mean, when you join school in first year and you're on the third or the fourth hockey team, <laughs> probably not that motivating. Yeah. And maybe if you're not getting encouragement. Mm. So I didn't come from a hockey whatever and and usually i suppose kids unless they're amazingly talented i'm sure start a bit younger tennis and hockey and they go in and they have uh so i'm not sure about that but i what i would say is i mean i took up triathlon later Mm. um and i would say i'm fairly persevere (laughs) and fairly resilient um because as you know doing a triathlon is so i took as a swimmer i was asked to do swimming parts of triathlon. And then I started running myself, actually, and Mm. then I said, sure, I might as well start cycling. And I took that on and really enjoyed it and competed very heavily for 10 years.
0: So you're a real experimenter then? You go out and try stuff and then see if you like it and go with
1: it. Well, I'm not sure about that either. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to say that, but I suppose it depends. You know, my husband's into swimming, cycling and running as well, and... I mean, there's a bit of... I did try to take golf up at some stage and then I decided not to bother because it took so much time and my husband wasn't with, yeah. in it and then at the weekends decided that cycling would probably be better for me. Yeah. Golf, do wa- waste
0: of a good walk and all that. Well,
1: exactly, I don't know, but maybe when <laughs> I have more time, I might golf.
0: Uh, let's go to, to a, bit, a bit older. So when you're sort of deciding to go to college, what were the prospects for you and your friends at the time? You would have been going off to college right at the start at that time when the economy was noticeably picking up
1: well it's interesting now you say that because i went to ursuline convent and i would say only a small percentage went to college at the time oh really yeah there wasn't a huge um so a lot of girls went into nursing or the bank yeah or possibly college or a secretarial course and that was That's very norm. traditional. To, to oh, that. exactly. It was very <laughs> traditional. Yeah. So unless your family, you know, really believed that they wanted their kid to go yeah. to college, but I, I would have only said there was maybe twenty percent of my year twenty-five wow. percent at the time. You know, so I'm fifty-two now. So, and uh, I'm
0: sorry. Are you talking specifically female friends or females, all your so friends? It was all girls. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: This is an all-girls nun school. <laughs> we, we can go back on on that. <laughs> Um, and look I my parents had co- hadn't gone to college yep. they'd had their own business a bar and a shop early on and that then dad went on to work in the B&I line and um, so it was about really at the time getting a job in my house and mm. working mm. and that was instilled in me and I really had this idea that I wanted to work and I wanted to be independent And I babysat, actually, in my teenage years to earn money. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I had my own money. My father then would supplement my shopping and would pay half, you know. And that was a great sense of independence. And I was going to be a nurse because kind of my mother had said that was a good job. Mm. And a a few of my friends were nursing, were going to nursing. Some were going to the bank. Some did go on to college and then the day before the interview for nursing I decided I didn't want to be a nurse much the devastation (laughs) and I mean the devastation of my mother Um, and I had really studied my biology my honest (laughs) biology to get in and so at the last minute I decided to do a secretarial course in Scary's Business College Any reasons? Well I had thought about going back to repeat my Leaving search and I think it suddenly died I know it was an age thing I suddenly said, Will I go back, repeat and go for college? Or will I do I did not want to do nursing, I decided it was a vocation and really I wasn't mm. very good at sick people at sick people. <laughs> yeah. So I went and did secretarial college in Scary's Business College. And some from there went on to the bank and some of my friends went on to different roles and I got an interview for Nixdorf Computer at the time. I saw that, yeah. yeah. And some people say, don't mention that because it shows your age. <laughs> um, and they were then subsequently bought by Siemens. And when I went for that interview, what was interesting, what he was most int- interested in was what I did in my spare time to earn money. And I babies had five young children. And he was a father, I think, with four young children at the time. And he couldn't believe when I explained to him that they'd go away for the weekend on a Thursday and I'd move in <laughs> and I'd mind, you know, wash, clean, give them their food, put them to bed. And the
0: kids would still be alive when they're back. And the would still
1: be alive and that I actually enjoyed it and that I was probably could be trusted mm. to run his office. So it was kind of like receptionist taking engineering calls at the time mm. uh, for engineers, uh, doing a bit of telesales. It was a bit of everything. So really, I was really lucky. In that first it's, job.
0: It sounds like that's your almost your own boss in that first role.
1: I was actually so mm. there was great empowerment and he needed that. Yeah. There was two of us. I think he wanted uh, these two women to kind of run the office day to day. And he was right, and we did. <laughs> and I suppose I always think about that first job, how lucky, because I yeah, didn't have yeah. any first job. And at the time other people who were very smart didn't get that great opportunity. And ended out staying in very small offices or businesses mm. and not having the potential to learn develop get invested in or get other career opportunities
0: so did you start defining your career what you wanted to do in that role you said oh actually management and leadership is something I quite like
1: no I can't say that you know, people say did you always want to be a CEO but what I had was this really strong work ethic mm that I really appreciated getting a job. Because remember, we came from the time before that, a lot of unemployment. Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of this idea of going to the bank or the civil service, pension. I mean, my parents told a pension, I didn't know what they were talking about. I mean, at 19, is that really what you think about? So, it is now, though, unfortunately. It, well, it is again, but, and they were probably right. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. But um, what happened when I went in there, I obviously... You know, you found out maybe what you were good at. Mm. There was courses you could go on. I got into doing... They put me on a telesales course. Oh, cool. And I rang businesses and looked for leads for the salespeople. You know, I organized conferences. You just got a taste for the bigger business world. It sounds
0: like an MBA in yes, practice.
1: Yes, it was. I mean... It was, really. I mean, it was like doing a business degree. Yeah, yeah. But it was hands-on. Mm. And at the time, you know, the leader there, Peter Ainscoe, uh, I remember him well, you know, he was really supportive. And he kind of empowered me. And I grew, I think I grew my confidence that, mm. oh, my God, hey. I can't can do this. this. This is business. I, I, I had never seen business, like a lot of young girls at yeah, the time. Yeah. I didn't even know what business was. And actually that... I'm valued and respected for what I can bring. And I also can, in general, get on well with people Mm. and all different types of people. So I think that's important. Um, So it was a great starting moment.
0: And what lessons did you, you may not have ever reflected on this, but what lessons would you have taken from that First boss, Peter?
1: Well, I think for him, hiring the right person Mm -hmm. and being able to delegate to people and, and maybe delegate stuff that he shouldn't be focusing on. Um, um, yeah, and I often talk about this, spending more time on the interview process mm. I think is important for people, making sure not only capabilities because people can learn more, but mindset of people, their work ethic, their commitment, their values mm. system so that there is potential for them to grow and to give more back to the company. Um, so yeah, I think, I think he was a a great boss.
0: Um, let's go, let's, let's talk about mistakes. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's a long time ago now, so you could probably admit them. What was the biggest mistake you made there? Or maybe anywhere in your early career? I remember once sending an email to 10,000 people that I shouldn't say. Oh dear God. (laughs)
1: Um, the biggest, I mean, look, I've made, I think I've made many mistakes really, in you know, my Mm. career, I think as an early manager, of people I don't think I was very good Yeah. Um, not saying I'm great now but I think um, I wouldn't have had maybe an understanding of uh, getting behind the person and what motivates them mm. and having more open and frank discussions about how they are and how they're feeling and what works for them and what not I think um, it would be more directive style
0: so you're sort of focusing on the process rather than the people yes I love it.
1: you know exactly and also yeah maybe just you know, that directive style where you tell people what to do <laughs> and this is what I want done and do it this way mm. while now you know even though I might have an idea about how I want it <laughs> done there'll be more about what you think and what ideas do you bring to the, the table and maybe understanding more uh, the people have strengths and development needs mm. understanding the strengths and focusing on those but also the development needs and um, and that people are very different. And I think I've learned that with age. I think The only good thing about getting old as a leader is how different people are yeah. and how they react to different situations um, and being much more perceptive to that, probably by asking more open questions and having more one-to-ones yeah. with with people that work with you. Um but look, I, I think that style of leadership I would have been as good. And just like you, you said, um, you sent 10,000 emails. I worked for the Golden Pages at one stage. And I remember selling, sending, it was a faxing at the time, the advert for a uh, competitor to the, to the competitor. <laughs> and it was like, you know, they used to have A all at. Um, it was like windscreens or something. I remember place, the old. Everyone had the A's because you were put up the front. And they used to be all competing with trying to be the first one. <laughs> and what do I do? They compete with each other. I sent the wrong ads to the wrong. And that was like a moment going, <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so I just had to uh, ring up and apologize and admit, which I think is probably the most important
0: thing. I was actually going to ask you, did you administrate away? So you did. And, and what do you do now when, um, when mistakes happen within your organization? First of all, what's your mindset towards them? And what would happen if, what, I suppose my question is, what do you want people to do first when they make a mistake in your organisation?
1: Well, I think the first thing, when, I, when you talk about my mistake, they were going to figure it out anyway, so I might as well admit it. <laughs> they knew I did it, right? So, but for me, it is really important that people own up and admit. Mm. And that's just a really, I would say that to people, you know, don't try to hide something. And also don't try to blame others. Mm. I also find I'm always flummoxed when people come in and say, this happened, this is what I did, I'm really sorry, or whatever. What can you actually say? Yeah. You know, you can really say, well, thank you for sharing. You know, I appreciate you didn't mean it. And um, I also can see that you're visibly not happy about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, great. And it's funny, so I do the same. My style is to... Now, well, you know, how you say it and how you do it. But would be to say, look, I have something to tell you. This is what happened, whatever. Um, and I think it's very important to do that because there's nothing worse than things being covered up or other people taking the blame for something. Mm. Or, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, what is the worst thing that can happen? And I think if people admire people that do it. And also, I think as leaders, we all make mistakes. We're people. Mm. Uh, but now you know obviously you might have to say how did it happen why did it happen because there is a bit of a learning Yeah. which I might often ask someone what have you learned from it you know i check the fax number twice <laughs> before I send the ad out I'm going to ask my colleague just would you check the, the you know?"
0: I have so many checks whenever I send out emails nowadays <laughs> yeah,
1: and it's the process it, it's just because there is a bit about what have I learned from the mistake mm. rather than it happening again
0: now, there is, like those two mistakes we just described, they're tactical. drop. You know, yes. the so when you're a leader and you've put in a strategy in place, the strategy is, is going on, never works out as you would like it to. When the strategy goes a little bit wrong, as a leader, how do you communicate that back to your organization? Mm-hmm. How transparent are you and how do you do that?
1: So I'm really comfortable with that. So it's interesting, um, I remember... Oh, yeah, I think I was, uh, I had a big boss over from vote it's years ago, and I was talking about something, and we presented it, and then afterwards he said, you know, that part of it is not on the global strategy. Mm. So, you know, it's technically not right. And I said, well, that's fine, but when I asked, I wasn't given this. And he's like, okay. So I had to, you know, kind of do my own version, because, you know, we have a global strategy, but you localise it to the country and then I said but sure it's fine I said you update it and I'll just stand up and change it but he said but you can't do that and I said why not but you can't admit that you're wrong I said oh no I can't but I'm not going to say I was wrong I'm going to stand up and go we had this this and this just to say the third part group have now clarified something and we've made a change but actually the change they made was better so I was actually delighted Mm. and it made really sense we had done a good bit, with good work, but they put a future look rather than a now look. I really liked it, no problem. So it's interesting that he thought you couldn't because of how it would look. Yeah. <laughs> so it's often to me about egos and how people are afraid to admit whatever, you know. so I don't, if it makes sense to me, and I can say, now obviously look, if there's a complete change, maybe you can't stand up and say, we were going down, you know, we're going <laughs> in the Cork-Dublin Road, but now we're going to Belfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe someone says, well, they're schizophrenic. But honestly, you know, if it's more sensible um, and it's the right thing to change or move, I think it's very important to stand up, communicate the change. Why? And I think people respect you more.
0: Uh, I think they, they recognise spin when they see it.
1: Exactly. I mean, much. these are really smart people. Yeah, yeah. So up to now, I really haven't had an issue... But if, you know, and if that was a circumstance where maybe it wasn't right, maybe I'll wait a few months Yeah. to maybe, like, when do we actually have to tell and communicate? Mm. But really, you know, the new authentic leadership bit and, and creating through followership, I think people see spin and they want to be told the truth. Mm. And the last thing you want is something leaked. Yeah, exactly. Or that they might think that you are hiding something from them.
0: You mentioned authentic leadership there. Uh, something wrapped up in there is the concept of purpose. Um, you know, you sort of have to identify as a leader with the purpose of your organization. How has that manifested itself through your career in the telecoms industry? Because you did get in early and you stayed there. So what has connected you to the, the telecoms industry?
1: Um, so, you know, I am not sure it was purpose at the start, to yeah. be very honest. I mean, basically, I had uh, worked in Cork in two companies, and then I got to London, and then I was home in Golden Pages, um, which I said is the Google of its time, the (laughs) one place to advertise. So that was great learning. And I was approached. Uh, ESAT Telecom has been set up, It was taking on the fixed monopolist at the time. And um, I was approached, and they were hiring a lot of women. I was 27, 28 years old. Was that a conscious effort at the time on their part? They were, because they knew that most of the men uh, selling at that time out were mainly probably ex-engineers and male. And I know during the interview process, I said, but I'm not a techie. And they said, you can learn anything if you want to learn it. This is about connecting with people, talking about a competitive product and service that we think you can do mm. and they're right yeah. I mean if you can connect with people um, you can sell any idea if you believe in the idea and I like the idea of um, a challenger coming into an incumbent uh, as we call them monopolist in the morning yeah. uh, who had been you know, excessive profits, excessive consumer pricing, a huge dominance in the market with no competition it was probably like the airline industry back then so that motivated me And I went into it and I was successful in it. And I think like a lot of of people end out in pharmaceutical or whatever. You just get into an industry and you learn it and you grow into it. Opportunities come and you stay.
0: You say that, but you've mentioned two things about connecting with people, which is very much what (laughs) telecoms do. So it does seem to match Mm. up with what you like to do. You like to connect Mm. with people. Um, Do you consciously uh, seek out a role where you feel meaningful work? or as you say do you just something that naturally happens
1: so I think in the last 10 years I've been much more focused on purpose Yeah. and the roles I do and the work I do and I really believe that you can do good business and do good mm. um, and I get offered roles on boards and in different companies that I fundamentally don't believe in their values mm. and I won't join them or what they do or how they make money And so, you know, so for me, Vodafone to me is about creating a better future, it's about creating a better Ireland, it's about investing in infrastructure, mobile and fixed, that uh, helps people connect, and I mean connect for good. Mm. That diversity and inclusion is a huge part of what I'm about, and connectivity in rural Ireland is exactly what's needed Mm. so that somebody, wherever they're living, old or young, can connect with loved ones or do great business, and I think the benefits of a digital society and a truly connected society are huge. So they tick all the boxes of the planet people working <laughs> remotely, yeah. working from home, and um, you know, women getting back to work, um people that feel disenfranchised, old people connecting on Facebook with their grandchildren. So I just feel really powerfully strong about it, and Vodafone globally and at head- have the absolute same values that I have. Um, so I feel really inspired and motivated every day in types yeah, of yeah, we do. Um, and that, you know, whether it's our partnership with ISPCC Childline, you know, we have a foundation going 15 years, we've given over 10 million in charitable causes as well as time mm. and investment in people. I mean, this is way before people focused on charity. And also I see places like Skibbereen and our Ludgate Hub, our partnership with ESB Cyro, and what it's done to the town and you know, brought back vibrancy to a town. It's allowed people to move back to where they're from, to set up businesses, mm. to have a quality of life. Um, it's, it's frankly, it's, it's amazing. So I'm you know, purposeful and I feel, you know, when I talk to people in Vodafone, that's what we talk about. In terms of the good we do, but with it you can deliver superior business results. I was just going to ask how yes. you,
0: how you uh, implement purpose. I suppose maybe deploy purpose within your organisation or use purpose as a way of evaluating the people and your organisation. Do you have fixed processes, or is it more of a mindset thing for you? Well,
1: it is a mindset, but everything goes back to the purpose. Every decision we make. Mm. So the ruling EU said you know, roaming charges should be abolished. But it was very technical when it came back to it. So if you had five gigs a date in Ireland, it meant there was this big complex thing and you'd be, you'd be entitled to, say, 3.8 gigs yep. in Portugal. <laughs> on That's actually... And we sat down and said, but hold on a second. Can the average person really figure out you're creating fear, uncertainty, doubt, or whatever? Let's just liberate it. We were the only operator in Ireland to say... Take your full home and tariff abroad. So it's interesting,
0: if, actually. I was with Vodafone at a time when I remember that.
1: Exact, so there's two things. One, it was the right thing to do because, you know, that was going to make it easier for you when you go on your annual holiday to Portugal to do the same thing as you did in Ireland, mm. right? To share, to connect, to not worry, to feel validated. Some people said to you, but you left money on the table. Right. you know you, you could have charged more and do whatever however our churn is one of the lowest in the market yeah, yeah. Leave. we got loyalty our nps on roaming is one of the highest one of the key reasons that people are remote really yeah. is a superior network and roaming yeah yeah. so do you see how a mindset of doing the right thing is that transparent is our pricing transparent okay it might sound expensive but is it all in and there's no mm. hidden charges so, look, I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm sure someone's listening. But it's a principle of how we work, and that's just one example. Diversity and inclusion, our gender, our focus on that. We have 50-50 male, female at management levels. Why is that? We look at pay at every level. We look at performance rating at every level. We look at promotions at every level. We look at um, everything is measured so the data... Tells us and informs us if there's biases. Mm. Per manager, we know what your gender balances in every team. What gets measured gets done. It shines the light on it. It's not saying you have to change, but let's be honest. If you walk in, you say you've an all male team, it, it's going to shine a red light all the time. So what's going on in that team? What biases do you have as a manager? Why is it that you're not bringing women in or whatever? Our policies on maternity leave, paternity leave domestic violence they're all linked in terms of creating a better future being a family brand Mm. living by what we say or do you know it's not a separate thing that some department over there do like our foundation okay the foundation gives charitable giving but there's something but i again you know someone's listening i said god she sounds like the nuns (laughs) obviously from the earth lines I believe it fundamentally creates better employee engagement, yeah. more loyal staff, better decision making, and ultimately our reputation and our brand in the market, and the loyalty that consumers and businesses have with us, and the experience they have will make them stay longer, buy more from us, stick with us if their competitors come with an offer. So ultimately, will drive revenue growth, increase profitability, so we can invest more capital in Ireland to give the best network.
0: I want to talk about diversity, actually, for a minute. Um, Mm. I think, uh, for me, one of the biggest innovations in management theory, probably over the last decade or or two, is that diversity of opinions leads to better diversity of decision-making, which leads to better business decisions. Was that something that you actively drove yourself from the moment you joined Vodafone? back yes. in 2012 so it's
1: 12 10. years ago about so I joined yeah it's 2008 maybe, yeah. you joined
0: in June, June 2008 or yeah, I remember now.
1: yeah so um, I joined and when I joined Vodafone I said I'm setting up a women's network I had never been involved in a women's network yeah. before that I had never seen a need or I'd never realised the biases that were there mm. or the environments that I'd worked in I also saw most of uh, my female friends give up work once they had children Mm. because they couldn't balance work and family because of the policies and the environment that were created in businesses. Let's say unconsciously. Yeah,
0: probably consciously too in a a lot of ways. Well,
1: do you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know really. I mean, I think there was a lot of you know, well everyone else to work nine to five, so why shouldn't she? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that that's a good point. Well, why shouldn't she? Well, she's the only one that can have children around here at the moment, <laughs> and it's probably okay for women to have children, and we'd like them with the falling birth rates, <laughs> and we have to accept that as part of our business, mm. and actually that the work they do and the contribution they make is so important and uh, that we want them to do that and come back to work. So set up the women's network and it was probably ahead of its time mm. and it really was a place where firstly at that stage it was women could come together, I could we, I could share my own experiences I could bring in other women I we brought in a lot of um, data and scientists which told us about what was going on, the biases that were there, so women had a place where they could feel they could ask questions figure out what was going on and obviously over the years that has opened up to include men mm. um, et cetera, which is probably important as well and it's obviously got a much bigger focus. And I decided that, you know, I was going to make changes and make an impact to create a fairer, a more inclusive environment for everyone. Mm. And then Vodafone has this vision to be the best employer for women by 2025. And the thinking there is, if it's the best employer for women by 2025, it's actually the best employer for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone's getting the same treatment.
0: Oh, one of the things that uh, you publish your diversity figures. Um, what's the power of that and what's the impact that it has
1: well we publish it because obviously we've, all, we've brought in all these amazing policies right so mm. whether it's flexible working or ter- taking term time holidays um, whether it's the maternity leave policy that's world class whether it's the paternity leave policy I mean it's grand having all the policies but also, often people have policies and the KPIs don't match now it can take time mm. so that's fine Uh, But we want to show we've created policies, but we've also created a culture and the behaviours. And here is the data Mm. that we've driven. So this idea that there aren't the women there, or you can't find them, or they don't stay. I mean, the stats showed us that on average, 90% of women that take maternity leave in Vodafone stay an average of nine years. Wow. So the business case pays for itself. And if you, just of,
0: on that that alone okay so the we, cost of retraining someone and all exactly. that so, exactly yeah.
1: okay. and our paternity leave now is 16 weeks paid fully paid for men mm. with the same ramp on after after the child is born which is they work four days and get paid five days for six months mm. and that pater, so we did that because men said i'm not spending time with my children because i can't afford to great point yeah so when i now saying well you can't afford to you have 16 weeks in the first 18 months to connect with your child to support your wife is working and there's no financial implications and the women were delighted with the policies because it removed the perceived career implications of having a child yeah, yeah very much so it addressed both so i really love it mm. and i'm really proud of it and that's what we call family friendly because we we think of ourselves as a family brand yeah whether it's home broadband tv prepay postpay know you know you have our adverts with all the family running around happy you know you you can't have that and then have these policies Mm. that don't don't align and of course the other policy which i want to mention which is again about doing good and our role as a purposeful organization and our impact on society is our domestic abuse Mm. policy can you just talk about that a little yeah so the stats go from one in three to one in five depending on what you report Mm women will experience domestic control, abuse or violence in their lifetime so it's shocking mm. so let's say 1 in 5 that's a lot of women it's a lot. and if you think about us who have 50-50 diversity in Vodafone uh, that's to say that they will be affected so what will we do as an employer and the research said that most of this women actually 2 thirds of the women felt safer in work than at home
0: wow that's pretty sad
1: so what we did is we gave... We, what we do is we give 10 days fully paid leave so they can sort out things, whether that's court yeah. orders or moving house or going... Which going is to often counseling. the most
0: difficult play, That first decision, exactly. where am I going to go tonight? Sort of
1: Access to professional counselling, which is important. Um, it's the setting up of a private bank account and advances on salary because often financial abuse is linked to yeah, control. Yeah. So... Now, that policy is brought out want to highlight a societal issue that we're aware of, mm. that affects women in Ireland. And we're saying, we hear you, so if you are, we are an employer that is going to help and support you through that. We put all our managers through a half-day um, domestic violence and abuse training by Women's Aid, mm. which was enlightening for people that this actually goes on. I can on.
0: imagine, even you just mentioned the bank account there, never had occurred to me.
1: Never, but, can, you know, control is... Isolation from friends, family, then, you know, maybe you should give up work because mm-hmm. I'd be happier. They give up work, then they have no access to employees, colleagues, um, probably isolated, as I say, from family, friends, and then no access to money. Yeah. And there they are, so they've no... So, again, it, it, you know, what I'm trying to get across is when you say about being purposeful, uh, you know, and how an organisation... And I think as business leaders now people are expecting more from us because they've mm. seen in other countries kind of what has happened by businesses staying quiet. but can I say you,
0: you do seem to have made that purpose per- personal to you uh,
1: yeah well it is personal to me but I feel I feel I'm in a role that's purposeful yeah. and has I suppose and actually it's interesting to say that when I got the role of CEO a female very senior female person who's now retired said I should have done more when I had the position and the power to do it. So don't regret that. So I suppose I'm really going for it mm. because what I don't want to do in 10 years time and look back is I should have said more. I should have stood up more. Um, and I do, and Vodafone, I'm really supporting policies that Vodafone groups support. Mm. So this is in every country, if yeah, no difference. Yeah. But you know, I would have led some of the paternity leave policies on behalf of all the group and so I'm, I'm not misaligned with the group
0: purpose or strategy. Oh, I would say you're very aligned. What I, what I was thinking there was the authenticity that your people will see in you in, oh, yeah. in carrying out the purpose. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about resilience. Um, and we mentioned June 2008. I think any mm-hmm. business person would know what happened about three months after June 2008. What was it like joining an organization, very high level, and then that financial crash hit?
1: But it was very interesting because I think I was lucky I joined it as a new person. Yeah. So you come in as brand new looking at this business. And thankfully at that, I felt we needed to make a lot of changes. But I don't know. if well, I didn't know there was going to be a yeah. So it was a bit of... Quite so well, that if that much,
0: jingle didn't fall, you may not have been able to... Well,
1: I think I would have made the changes anyway. And I'm really glad because I was really set up when that January hit. Because I'll never forget it. Yeah. So I went in, I assessed our organization. I did a huge restructuring. I think it was 150 in enterprise at the time. And I offered a redundancy and we had 50 people take it up. And it allowed me to bring in new skills because we were going from being a mobile company to a mobile and fixed company. Mm-hmm. And we needed different skills and new skills. So, um, and I restructured the organization and refocused it on what I thought I wasn't a CEO, obviously, yeah, yeah. in the B2B space. And then basically, he came into work in January, and basically, what happened first time connections halved the monthly. I mean, the graph is serious. Wow. Churn doubled. So, like. So,
0: these are business customers?
1: Who basically. So, basically what happened was they waited on Christmas, because I think it was Ireland, and they <laughs> spent all their money in a great Christmas. And they came back in January, and instead of 20 employees, with twenty phones, they said we only have ten employees, so they had to get rid of phones. Wow. So people and phones had, or they could have had phones in a drawer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they could have said, "I need to go to a cheaper supplier," or "I need to take the phones away from." But
0: them. this was happening in thousands
1: of. How Like, like key indicators are first-time connections every month, and they go along every month. You could have yeah, yeah. Thousand or two thousand, whatever. But then imagine it going to like one hundred or whatever, and say five hundred people leave you every month; they go to someone else, so they leave the country it went 2000 I mean it was a car crash Yeah, I can imagine. we were the first country so the luck was that I was only new <laughs> so
0: you couldn't be blamed
1: so I couldn't be blamed <laughs> but I mean from a group perspective they were looking at Ireland remember then there was a little domino effect Greece and it then went on but there was a lot of scrutiny mm. about what was happening in I, what was
0: the acronym of PIGS wasn't it yes. Portugal Ireland Greece and Spain that's right yeah. and that
1: happened after but it was a very stressful time for a lot of people in the organisation a lot of people got moved on Mm. Um, I look you know in terms of resilience I often talk to people about this you actually need to be resilient it's very you because what I talk to people about is there's professional and personal crises that will happen probably everyone's life Yeah, and you need to be as I always say in the best place for that and often for me when I talk about that is I need to be healthy and well And I do that through my own wellness Mm. in terms of exercise, which I do. I continue, I don't race, but I continue to swim, go to the gym, bike, run. And that, you know, five days a week, as much before work as I can, because I am a much better person. If I do half an hour, 45 minutes, when I go in, because I don't know what's going to be thrown at me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anything. You know, it's the coronavirus now, it could be. You know something else and you need to have a perspective and you need to be in a good place and people have personal crises people have deaths and they have sadness Mm. and And yet you still have to perform so you know we have a big focus on mental health and wellness and i often say to leaders that i coach is you can't look after anyone if you can't look after yourself Mm. first if you are not good nobody can be good And I often say to them, you know, you can take or leave it. You can't dictate what people... And people's idea of wellness is different. Some people like to meditate. Some people want to yoga. But finding what they need that will give them perspective and balance and resilience to deal with the setbacks that come. Um, And I think it's one of the biggest, probably, pressures and stresses on leaders of nowadays. Yeah. And, And the more leaders I work with, the more now this idea of drinking a lot and being grossly overweight. I mean, you know, the years ago ideas that a lot of my bosses were, to be honest. The prevailing mood
0: would have been that. Yeah, but
1: now, you know, most of the people that I might work for or with in their 50s have found that balance Mm. and they would watch what their diet, their alcohol consumptions and what they need to do in their spare time that helps them switch off.
0: In terms of resilience, it's probably not a coincidence that the term psychological safety has come to such the fore since that 2008 financial crash how do you put a psychological safety framework i suppose or how would you put it um, around your individuals and teams within vodafone
1: yeah so we do a lot of team effectiveness work um, so we try to spend a lot of time together talking about how we can work more effectively and how we should work mm. and how do we share And we've put things, like we have a Monday meeting and we do a round table where people kind of talk about the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. You know, so we're all kept abreast because we're all busy and are functional. So there's a lot of sharing um, of things and the regular one-to-ones is where I would often say, what's going on? What help do you need? You know, you're better off sharing. Or you'd encourage people to go to other people around the table. Mm. So... We try to talk about that and make sure that people know they can. My experience is when people don't, it's a disaster. Yeah, yeah. And often the crises that come in around my table is someone hasn't put their hand up early enough to say, actually, I really can't figure this out Mm. or I need help or it's more serious. And then you're trying to figure out, did they not see it? You know so that they're like you know kind of in a different world, yeah, which is a capability thing, um, or actually, are they not able to ask for help, mm. which is can be an ego or a vulnerability thing, which people have, yeah, yeah, of course. So, also, when you get to know people, you know, you have some people they share everything with you, right? And
0: you're like, I don't need to know everything <laughs> it's only 9.05 please <laughs> exactly so let me get a coffee, you know, but there is, <laughs> then there's
1: others who you know. It'll show weakness yeah. and vulnerability and that's core to them. And then if that's the way, you know that, so you'll dig a bit deeper maybe. Are you sure there's nothing you want to share with me or that project you mentioned? Is there anything on your mind? Do you see? So I think, um, I think the team effectiveness work is crucial. Um, work How we best work as a team, understanding each other's way of working mm. um, and how people go about things. And how people like to work and how people like to be treated. But my experience, again, is everyone wants to help everyone. Mm. And the goodwill is there. And so... I've it, always
0: said it people that like get f- afraid of making a presentation, everybody wants you to have a good time. Everybody's fine. Everyone's yep. fine.
1: Like no one sits there going, <laughs> you know... I is trying, trying to engage, yeah, trying to give people tips and presentations <laughs> and people get
0: so nervous. Let's look at the, the sort of positive side of psychological safety, which would be innovation, essentially, is, yeah. is, is allowing people to experiment. So how, because as you say, you're, you're moving from telecoms, pure telecoms company, but how have you guys sort of aligned internal innovation I'm particularly uh, interested in? Because often when these companies get so big, then innovation can get blocked within it. So how have you unblocked innovation within the company?
1: Look, again, you know, you've kind of core business stuff going on and you're always trying to, yeah, focus on that, but you want to give time to innovation and new ideas. Hmm. And it's making sure you give it the time um, to do that, that you're focusing on it, that you have people to do that. And also we've set up different groups Hmm. that are looking at them from different parts of the organization and for them to work in kind of squads yeah. or a more agile way or a more different way um, and getting insights from customers as well and the voice of the customer in more different ways than we'd have done yeah. and we try to encourage people to do it the way they want to do it. They come from other organizations and mm. uh, we may have been gone down a more traditional way of gathering insights or data. And they do it in other ways, yep. and we like to try new things and let people. Um, and you kind of have to. And I would say it's like it's a fairly non-hierarchical non-hier- model involved. Yeah, yeah. So even though we've been around in Ireland for eighteen years, we're probably the longest telco with the same owner. Mm-hmm. I I think I think we are quite innovative, and again, maybe it's because we're in twenty three countries as well, and we've a group. And they're always pushing us as well Mm. so that we don't get traditional and set in our ways. I'll be honest, I have this healthy paranoia of, you know, will we exist in 10 years' time? I often throw that out. Yeah. And to make sure that we keep questioning our role. And I often say if there's only one of us left, make sure it's Vodafone. (laughs) Because, you know, our competitors could change. Mm. You know, we think of traditional competitors, but you have now have the Googles, the Microsofts, you know. Everybody's they, competing with each other nowadays. Exactly. It's just kind of coopetition, uh, partnering. And we, I think was one thing I noticed when I joined Vodafone 12 years ago. They were very much do everything on their own, mm. build it themselves. One, probably because they could afford to. And there's much more money and much more profitability. And now it's much more, well, hold on. That's not something we're core at. Bring partners in trust them a bit more, share. So I think, though, it's a constant challenge for us that we are putting the right people, the right time, the focus on innovation. And it it must be be a
0: real challenge for you in getting innovation from the front lines as a CEO because often as it goes back up the levels, it will get spun into a way that sounds better for each person's manager. So how do you sort of cut through that noise and and get those direct interactions from the front lines? Because Vodafone would have many customer-facing roles. Yeah,
1: yeah. And look, I think it's one of the importance of keeping in touch with your people close to them and your customers. Because I think once you lose that, Mm. I think you could be on a spiral of decline. Mm. And I would be very hands-on. You know, we have an open plan office, I go up to the canteen for breakfast uh, for lunch every day I walk around the building I pop down to the coffee dock I hear a lot of things (laughs) and people talk to me um, quicker than other people and sometimes they're Mm. like how did you hear about that Anne? (laughs) so I approach people I ask people what's going on I do retail visits so talking to people and I enjoy that actually Mm. about my role I don't want to be up on the sixth floor in an ivory tower my own lift so it's what motivates and inspires me and often by that i get nuggets of information that i question or you know or i want to improve on Uh, it's the same with the people obviously in the digital world it's a bit difficult different and difficult so we obviously have a huge digital team that are looking at data Mm. in terms of um, and they do different now studies they watch they agree people go on the app and they look and they actually watch them on the camera do it they agree and we have different ways and these people would come from the likes of google and facebook real techie digital first companies Mm. to make sure that the experience is good enough and i suppose i have to trust them on that just empower them (laughs) and make sure they're supported and i show interest and i give them i shine a light on the work they're doing
0: uh, penultimate question. Um, just as you were talking there about uh, walking around the building and talking to people, what role, and Ivory Tower, I think was mentioned, what role does ego and humility play as for the modern leader?
1: I, honestly, I think it's one of the most important things. People with egos um, and lack of humility is a huge issue and I've seen it. I've worked with people. Mm. It can really hold them back. Mm. The team they work in and the company and definitely uh, the focus of modern leadership and what we would test are those things mm. and what i would say is that people with big egos and lack humility would not probably pass the interview process um, and this is where people don't admit mistakes mm. or they hide things or they agree a course of action And you see, this strategy thing that we talk about, three to five is strategy. It's a strategy, it's a roadmap, and it's a guideline. But you might have to go off a bit. And you have to have the confidence in yourself and the humility to say, maybe that was wrong, or it's okay to go off, and that you don't have an ego that, you know, is going to hold you back. So, and I think we're seeing it in a lot of the newer leaders, the Sachin and Dals that are out Mm. there, Um, a lot of the tech companies now you meet um, when you meet them first you might be surprised that they're the CEO Hmm. while years ago it was clear when the CEO walked into a room Um, so I think it's that balance I think yes you need to have an impact and you have to have influence Mm -hmm. but I really think a big ego is something that you really need (laughs) to lose if you want to be a modern-day CEO.
0: Well, maybe that'll be the answer to my last question. Um, the last time you were in the IMI, you were here to receive your IMI Life Fellowship. Um, it must have been one of those moments where you reflected a little on your career. What would be your advice for a competitive, ambitious corconian that came into your office tomorrow uh, at the, the, the start of their career?
1: So the first thing, I was humbled to receive the award. And it is a bit, you know, you get... I was the, oh my God, you know, I, I can't believe the girl from the Ursuline Convent that was meant <laughs> to be a nurse, um, you know, was the CEO of Vodafone and has, is receiving these accolades. It is very humbling. Mm. And I can't believe it, like some of my school friends, <laughs> which is wonderful. Uh, but, you know, what I say to young people, and often it's young girls or whatever, you know, if they came into my office, you know, what I'd say to them is, um, the world is your oyster first. The opportunities for women now are endless and um, you will need to work hard and having a work ethic is really important um, i would say to them to be curious and open ask questions try to learn more never think you have the answer um, be open to opportunities and Getting on with people, being able to connect and get on with people of all different backgrounds, Mm. men and women, um, is key. Because if you can't get on with people, it's all about working in teams. I think that's a huge issue. And the last thing I say to people is be kind and empathetic. Because kindness is a huge quality. And never forget that.
0: Good advice. And um, thanks so much for coming in. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Great. Thank
1: you very much.